Good morning to you and welcome to this time of worship here at uh, um, Memorial Church. Am I seeing a reverend out there, Doug? We have an, an, uh, uh, and, and my cousin, Lynn. Okay, I'll tell about you in a minute. Uh, <clears throat> good to see you all here. Uh, but it's good to see all of you here. Glad that you can, can be with us today in worship. I uh, want to share with you some news of what's going on here. Uh, we remind our children of their program tonight, Mission Kids and um, Choir and Bible Study at the usual time, 5.30 to 7. We hope that all of you, children and adults, will join us next week for our annual Halloween Carnival and Trunk or Treat uh, starting at 5 p.m. next Sunday afternoon in the Family Life Center. Uh, there'll be food and, and, of course, the trunks will have treats for the children to, to get. Uh, you're invited to join us also in supporting the international mission of Operation Christmas Child. Look for additional information um, in your Sunday school classrooms or in other places of the church. Or see Katie Jeter or Joy Hudson about questions or additional information. Uh, we're going to be doing this project just for about a month. We need to finish up on the 20th of November in order to have them ready to be um, distributed. So if you would like to be a part of Operation Christmas uh, Child, you will hear more about that. Basketball sign-ups are going on right now. Um, we ask you to check with our website, www.greerchurch.com, and sign up for basketball. Um, we're hoping to do that in short order, so we invite you to get that done quickly. Today is a special offering for Good Samaritan Fund, and the way we do that is if you've got an extra dollar bill, we just ask you to put that in the offering when it's passed, and that goes to help our neighbors here in Greer in need. Please remember that next Sunday is a fifth Sunday, and that means something special, different here. We will be having only one service next Sunday so that we might all be together. And this time, it's the turn for us to be out in our Family Life Center for a contemporary worship setting at 10 a.m. So we hope that you will be there. Uh, and remember also that there are donuts and coffee, if that's any added incentive to be there. Uh, but anyway, we hope to see you as we all get together, the purpose of which, like I said, is that we might have occasion to be together because uh, we never want to have two separate congregations. We want to be together as often as we can. Also, I'm, it's getting to be a bad habit. I give June the wrong hymn numbers. Our first hymn is number 185. I must be getting uh, slack in my old age. But anyway, that you need to, to know about. Um, yesterday, someone called and said, get a state paper. Did you see that? I'm on the front page. And I didn't have to raise bail. <clears throat> they were making, doing an article about how the Gamecocks weren't playing and so people were getting married. And of course, Trisha Dobson was getting married to Chris Morris and we were all down in Columbia for that. And so I'm on the front page of the state paper. How about that? Got by with my friends again. I do want to tell you just a brief historical note. The Gillens are here. Gillens are here. Lynn is my second cousin. Back here in the hall, you've got a um, list of the ministers or pictures of the ministers who were, were here. 
And of course, our great grandfather, Austin B. Earl, was here in like 1890, 92. And um, uh, Lynn's grandfather was the registrar at uh, Walford Forever, Bates Scoggins. So anyway, good to see you folks here. And uh, we get to see each other very seldomly, even though we're cousins. So it's good that we can see each other today. Let us now begin our time together in worship.
Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his truth. Amen. of faith is the Apostles' Creed, let us unite in this historic confession of the Christian faith. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life of Amen. Be seated, please. This time we'll invite the children to make their way down the side aisles up here to join Jim Scudder for a few moments of sharing.
morning. First off, I want to say I dodged that big class that Marnie had a couple weeks ago, and it's kind of hard to follow Marnie and, uh, and uh, Harriet Johnson. Anyway, how many of you go to school? All right, this morning we're going to talk about love, one of the commandments, and classroom rules. This, I'm going to read some scripture first, and then I got a little story. It says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second, the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And that comes from Mark. I imagine most of you have seen a, a, list of, a list of rules in your school, in your classroom. So I guess if you would walk through school, in every classroom you'd walk into, you'd have a list of rules on the, on the wall, right? Anybody's got a teacher, you got a list of rules? Even though some of the rules are different, most of them pretty much would be the same thing. How many of you have heard of these? Listen carefully. That's big in our house. Following directions. Obeying the teacher. Work quietly. Keep your hands to yourself. Be kind to others. If you were to ask me which classroom rule was the most important, I know what I would say. I would say the most important rule is to respect and obey your teacher. And the second is very much like it. Be kind and show respect for your fellow students. If we would just follow those two rules, there really wouldn't be any need for any more. The religious leaders of Jesus' day like to sit around and discuss the law. They especially like to ask Jesus questions about the law to try to trick him into saying something that would cause people to turn against him. One day they were questioning Jesus, and he answered them with one good answer right after another. One of the teachers of a religious law was standing there listening to the debate. He realized that Jesus had answered well, so he asked, of all, these, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Most of you know the Ten Commandments, don't you? How would you answer that question? This is how Jesus answered. He said the most important commandment is this. The Lord our God is the one and only Lord. You must love your Lord, your God, with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. The second equally important, love your neighbor as yourself. You love your neighbors? Sometimes we do, right? They might come over and play ball in your yard and you don't want them to, or they got a dog that does his business in your yard. You may not like that either. <laughs> there is no other commandment is greater than these. After Jesus answered, no one else dared to ask him any more questions. What a wise answer. If we could keep those two commandments, we wouldn't have any trouble keeping the rest of them, would we? Alright, let's pray. You don't have to repeat after me. That's going to say a little prayer. Dear Father, help <laughs> us to love you with all your heart, soul, and strength and to love one another as we love ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And I was going to bring some candy, but I forgot. <laughs>
Our Old Testament lesson is from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 34, verses 1 through 12. Then Moses climbed Mount Nebo from the plains of Moab to the top of Pisgah, across from Jericho. There the Lord showed him the whole land, from Gilead to Dan, all of Naphtali, and the territory of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negev, and the whole region from the valley of Jericho, the city of Palms, as far as Zor. Then the Lord said to him, This is the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when I said, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you will not cross over into it. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in Moab, as the Lord had said. He buried him in Moab in the valley of opposite Beth Peor. But to this day, no one knows where his grave is. Moses was 120 years old when he died, yet his eyes were not weak, nor his strength gone. The Israelites grieved for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days until the time of weeping and mourning was over. Now Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him. So the Israelites listened to him and did what the Lord had commanded Moses. Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those miraculous signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his officials and to his whole land. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of Israel. Here ends the lesson. Our responsive reading is Psalm 90 on page 809 and following. I invite you to turn to that page and stand as you're able as we share God's word responsively. <clears throat> Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. You turn us back to the dust and say, Turn back, O mortal ones. You sweep them away. They are like a dream, like grass which is renewed in the morning. For we are consumed by your anger, by your wrath we are overwhelmed. For all our days pass away under your wrath, our years come to an end like a sigh. Who considers the power of your anger, the awesomeness of your wrath? Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. 
Make us glad as many days as you have afflicted us and as many years as we have seen evil. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Epistle reading is from 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 8. You know, brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure. We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts. You know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from men, not from you or anyone else. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. Here ends the lesson.
Let us join our hearts in prayer. We thank you for this time to be together, Lord. It is good that we can come here from our busy lives where sometimes we're worn down and torn down. And here we come to hear your words of comfort and encouragement. And we find that being together in your presence is a time of being raised up, resurrected of sorts, to renewed life. And we're grateful for this. Thank you, Lord, that we can come to you in our time of need and confess our shortcomings and sins, and you forgive us again and again, and you fill us with more of your presence and self by your spirit, enabling us to grow and to live more closely to the example set by Jesus for us. And so we're grateful for this time to assemble together and to sing your praises and to give you the thanks that our words cannot begin to express for the goodness that you show us moment by moment in our lives. We read earlier, Lord, of how there had not been anyone like Moses to come to teach people, and at the time that was written, I'm sure that was true. But we come this morning to give you thanks for sending one like Moses, but greater than Moses, one that was from your very presence and your side, even Jesus, our Savior. We're thankful that as Moses reported what he saw and heard from you, Jesus taught us what he knew to be in your heart because it was in his heart as well. And so we give you thanks that One like Jesus has come, our Lord and Savior, to teach us and to give his life for us that we might know for sure your love and forgiveness is eternal and given to us freely. And we pray, Lord, that we might put into practice the simple faith that Jesus taught and concentrate our lives on loving you in response for your love for us and loving our neighbor as ourselves. We're thankful, Lord, that you have loved us with your whole heart, mind, and soul. You have denied yourself that we might receive your goodness and grace. Help us, Lord, to return that love to you, to love you with our hearts and our souls and our minds and our strength. And then help us, Lord, to love our neighbor as ourselves so that people might know whose we are. For we pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord, as he taught us to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.
Let us now worship God by giving.
Gospel reading is Matthew 22, verses 34 through 46. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the, the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on, those, on these two commandments. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Here ends the lesson. <clears throat> On my first Sunday with you, just seven and a half years ago, my sermon was entitled, Distilling the Commandments. And some of you got real excited because you thought I was going to talk about my previous career in moonshining or something. Uh, but in that sermon, I talked with you about how Jesus had said that all of the Old Testament could be distilled or boiled down to three loving relationships. Loving God, loving and accepting yourself, and loving others. I am sure that uh, you remember every word of that sermon. I wish, I wish I did, but I'm forgetting things these days. There probably isn't a more important text to preach on than that passage about loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. The rest of the laws in the Bible, and for that matter, the laws of our society, simply explain how love should act as we relate to one another in various ways. It is also very important for us to learn how to love ourselves. The other day I was watching a rerun of the old Dick Van Dyke show. Rob Petrie was sick and was ignoring his son Richie. Richie cried to his mother, Daddy doesn't like me. And his mother res responded, That's not true. Daddy just doesn't like himself very much today. When we don't love ourselves, we aren't easy to live with. But if we don't learn to love our neighbors, we have no business claiming that we love God. Now, I don't say that. The Bible says that in 1 John 4. If we grow, though, in our ability to love God with our total being and to love all of our neighbors around us, around the world, with the same love that we've learned to have for ourselves, we might find ourselves always doing what the law in the Bible tells us we should do if we just always perfectly loved. 
But today I want to concentrate our thoughts on the second part of the gospel lesson, the part where Jesus asked the Pharisees, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? When they replied that the Messiah was supposed to be a son of David, Jesus replied, well, if that's true, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls the Messiah Lord? For, the, for David said, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? In the days that led up to Jesus' crucifixion, there were frequent question and answer sessions along the road between Jesus and the religious leaders. In lots of ways, these sessions resembled our modern day press conferences. Questioners then as now had many different motives for asking their questions. Some sincerely wanted answers, like the man who asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Some wanted to test Jesus' knowledge to see how smart he was. And that was like the man who asked about the most important law. Some wanted to ridicule Jesus and the Pharisees for their belief in life after death, something that they knew that Jesus talked a lot about. And so they invented a story about a woman who was widowed seven different times, and then they taunted Jesus and the Pharisees about the impossibility of eternal life because whose wife would this poor woman be in the resurrection when she had seven husbands? Some questioners hoped that they could improve their own social standing in the community by asking Jesus a smart question that would make other people admire them more. We see that in some of our press conferences today as well. It would be still better if they could ask Jesus a question that made him look a little bit foolish or if Jesus' response would be something they could turn and use against him. We heard Jesus say that if we destroy our temple, he could rebuild it in three days, they reported at his trial. Some of them were motivated by the desire to hold on to their power, like the ones who asked Jesus, who gave you the authority to cleanse the temple and to preach? Now Jesus answered different questions in different ways. Sincere questions he answered with sincere answers. He answered the politically motivated questions about authority by turning the tables and asking a question of his own. And when they refused to answer his question, he said, well, then I don't have to answer yours. He was a master of these press conferences. All of these questions show beyond doubt that Jesus knew and understood the Bible better than anyone else. But I guess we should expect that from the one who was the Word of God in human flesh. After hearing all of their questions, Jesus turned the tables on them and asked them a sincere, serious question. Whose son is the Messiah supposed to be? And they gave him the stock answer, a son of David. Jesus didn't tell them that they were wrong because they weren't, but their message was incomplete and Jesus showed them this fact when he left them with another question. If that's true, if all the Messiah is, 
is a son of David, then why would David have referred to him as the Lord? No one dared to ask Jesus any question after this one because nobody wanted to look dumb. That's why I stayed quiet in class most of my high school years. Jesus' question muzzled uh, everybody that day, although I don't know that that was his intention. What exactly was Jesus uh, saying in his question and answer about the Messiah? On the surface, it appears that Jesus was trying to deny that there has to be a link between King David and the Messiah, leaving, leaving open the possibility that the Messiah might be born from some other heritage. And there were some in that day that questioned Jesus' heritage, and in so doing, they questioned his right and the right of his followers to claim that he was the Messiah. Those who knew that his home was in Nazareth rather than in Bethlehem certainly doubted that Jesus was the Christ. The chief priest even made fun of people who claimed that Jesus might be the Messiah by saying, are you from Galilee too? Search and you will see that no prophet comes from Galilee. Therefore some were wondering if Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah independent of his ancestry. But that interpretation of Jesus' words would run contrary to the New Testament writers themselves because they insisted that Jesus was a descendant of King David. In fact, they included two separate lineages of Jesus, and both of them lead back to David. Further, they included Jesus' birth narratives that placed his birth in Bethlehem. And one of those narratives insisted that his birth had occurred at a time of the gathering of David's family there, a mandatory gathering. Jesus had no reason to throw doubt on the historical link with the royal family, so there must have been something else that he was trying to get the people to see. What had been a problem for Jesus, though, limiting his mobility forcing the, the most of his work to be done outside of Judea, uh, were those usual expectations of what the Messiah would be like and would do when he came. Everyone expected the Messiah to get busy raising an army. And here Jesus was content to raise people's awareness about God in their lives. Oh yes, occasionally he did raise the dead, the Messiah was supposed to purify the nation by destroying those half-hearted followers of the law of Moses, but Jesus wasn't doing that either. Instead, he was forgiving them, restoring them to full participation in the community of faith. The Messiah was supposed to restore freedom to the nation by destroying the enemies and driving the Romans out of Palestine so why was Jesus saying things like, pray for your enemies and for those that persecute you and spitefully use you? He even healed the servant of a Roman soldier, failing, I guess, to see that as giving comfort and aid to the enemy. The Messiah was expected to be a spiritual leader, bringing enthusiasm back to the temple and the worship there, reconnecting God with his people but instead, Jesus of Nazareth made it impossible for people to worship at the temple on that day that he took whips and drove animals and money changers out. 
And on one occasion, he said that where you worship wasn't all that important. It was how you worship in spirit and truth that mattered to God. And who would have ever been able to figure out that the Messiah's idea of how to restore the relationship between God and people would be by the sacrificial death of the Messiah. And the victory that he would win would be the battle against sin and death. Most challenging of all, Jesus preferred to wear the clothing of a servant to the robes of royalty. His understanding of what the Messiah should be like and how the Messiah should live was in stark contrast to that of the man on the street and for that matter, the men in the temple. So Jesus wrote, quote of Psalm 110 wasn't a denial of his Davidic heritage and legacy, but rather was an expansion upon it. He was indeed the son of David, but that and then more. David, speaking by the, by the word of God while under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, called the Messiah Lord instead of my descendant, my son. The Christ was to be more then than just a mere human descendant of David. He was to be Lord as well as son. That's what Jesus was trying to teach them that day, that he was both human and divine, both king of their lives, but not like they thought, but also the son of God. In the understanding of Jesus in the early church, David's words should be understood this way. The Lord God Almighty said to the Lord, the Messiah, sit at my right side until I make your enemies your footstool. In Acts 2, Peter quoted that same psalm to explain that this is what had happened to Jesus, that Jesus had been raised from death and that now he was absent from earth because he had ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father until God finished putting all of the enemies of the cross under Jesus' feet. Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made Jesus Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified, proclaimed Peter. And when God completes his work of subduing all of Christ's enemies and making them his footstool, the Messiah will return to reign. So Jesus really wasn't trying to trick anyone or muzzle them. He was asking them a question that they were afraid to answer because that would make them look incomplete in their knowledge, but he was trying to help them broaden their narrow interpretation of the Bible that was preventing them from understanding that the Messiah was already there in the person of Jesus. Yes, the Messiah would come from Bethlehem and be a descendant of David, but even more important, the Messiah would come from the throne of God to earth. Lord, therefore, in the same sense that God is Lord, and the scribes couldn't understand that, but Peter and the disciples did. And they went into all the world to proclaim. Let, it, let everyone know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Amen.